0: Hey everybody, we've got something special. We decided it was time to take the podcast on the road, so we went to New York to record four podcasts, one in an office overlooking Union Square, and the three others in a suite with a terrific view of Times Square. So the deal is this, we've got four podcasts in the series. This is the first one, and we're going to drop them every two weeks as usual, which means the series will take us all the way through the holidays. The first one we recorded with Danny Meyer in his 17th floor office looking out over Union Square on a beautiful day in Manhattan. I have to let you know beforehand that we didn't have our usual setup. So you'll hear some city noise in the background, sirens and things like that. So in a city filled with world-class restaurants, names like Se, Danielle, and John George, Danny Meyer has made quite a name, not only for himself, but for a kind of dining experience people want over and over. One of the reasons I wanted to talk with Danny is because I want to know how he does it, what the challenges have been, how it all started. Let's get right to it. Welcome back everybody. Doug Schaefer here with another episode of The Taste. We have taken The Taste on the road. We are in New York City. We are in the office of today's contestant, and I was trying to figure out how to introduce this guy, and the only thing I could come up with that kind of sums it all up is, he's just been a really good friend for over 25 years. We're here with Danny Meyer today. Danny, welcome.
1: Yeah, Doug, I gotta say, it's great to have you in my New York office, and we're gonna prove it, I'm sure, during the course of this podcast that we're in New York City with some of the natural sounds of of this island. I also think you and I have known each other for more than 25 years because Union Square Cafe opened in 1985, which is 33 years ago. Okay, well, I and was... And we hosted a, a Stag's Leap District uh, lunch, I think.
0: Danny, you don't know this, but there's been two things I've done with each of my five children that was as I raised them through the years. They had to do two things with me. The first was go to an afternoon baseball game in May at Wrigley Field to see the Cubs. And the second was to have a meal at Union Square Cafe. And right. I have achieved that with all five of my kids, and they know how important that is. So you need to know that.
1: I'm deeply, deeply <laughs> honored, especially for the, the latter. <laughs> being well, a being, being, being a Cardinal
0: fan, yeah, we've talked about that. Um, but anyway, let's start with you. Born in the Midwest, growing up with your family, was the table the big thing? Because I'm, I'm trying to get to what how it started out with you was it family meals was i know your your dad was i know i know you travel with your dad a lot i want to hear about that but
1: where do you think this came from well we traveled as a family a lot my parents were married for 25 years before they were divorced and probably Mm -hmm. the happiest two years of their marriage were the first two years which Mm. is kind of an odd thing to say because they didn't have any of the three kids those first two years right but they spent those first two years in alsace because my dad was a counterintelligence agent uh, for the army. Huh. And he was on the border of France and Germany, and there were no altercations during those two years. So they spent all of their time traveling by car, meeting innkeepers and restaurateurs, and going to wineries, and, um, and eating, and, and learning uh, deeply about the French culture. My dad was a language expert after he graduated from Princeton He got a scholarship to some language school in Monterey, I guess the army was sponsoring it, Monterey, California. I never knew that. And he took those language skills and turned them into a career. Wow. And so they got back after those two years and all of his friends would ask him, where should we eat? Where should we go? Where should we travel? And he had, he and my mom had created this network of friends who it turned out had a loosely connected group of countryside inns in France that all had nice little restaurants and the the group was called Relais de Compa okay he became a travel agent became the first American agent for that group Relay de Compagna which then became relay and Chateau oh, and wow. in those early days of his travel agency and this now you know move ahead into the uh, the 1960s we always had at least one French person living in our home who would invariably this, be the son or daughter of one of these innkeepers. And they were there, they were there, there to, to do two things. Translate. They worked in my dad's office and they would translate for right. all of his clients who, who needed help. And then they would serve as babysitters for us at night. <laughs> and what was kind of amazing is we were getting, all three of us, all three kids... We're getting this incredible education in food and wine and French culture. There was French spoken at the table all night, um, especially when my parents didn't want us to know what they were talking about. (laughs) And that was a good reason to learn French. Uh, We had a little dog named Ratatouille. (laughs) There was always a bottle of Beaujolais or something like that on the table. at night, And it just became a normal thing to cook with my parents. Um, oh. and to eat and to travel. And this is fascinating because... And that, I just have to say yeah. that, that wasn't a typical thing in the 1960s or 70s. You know, keep in mind Julia Child was just coming on, just coming on board at that time. For you
0: guys at such a young age should be exposed to, you know, people from, you know, someone from anywhere. I never was. You know, you and I are the same era, same vintage more or less, and I mean totally different in the Schaefer household. You know, we didn't have wine. It was bourbon and beer and cocktails and if we, Dad ever had wine, it was a bottle of Lancers or something. That's so funny. Oh given, yeah,
1: given what he's now. Done. Oh
0: yeah, Well, I run into people and or, you know customers, they go, "Oh, your dad! What a wonderful dream he had to go out and make wine!" And I said, "He didn't do it to make wine. He did it because it was a, it was going to be a good investment. Was, the wine boom was going to happen. So he learned it. He learned to like wine after buying a vineyard. So well, it was pretty he's interesting.
1: Taught a whole lot. You and he have taught a whole lot of other people to love wine. That's for sure." so
0: mind expanding experiences at home so you're in st louis high school then the college what was high school like sports extracurriculars was there a cooking club what you know yeah well so <laughs> i
1: went to five different schools growing up in st louis which is which is an interesting thing i haven't five. talked about this a lot yeah um, i went to well i'm including nursery school but okay i went to a nursery school and then i went to a public school that was reasonably close to our home from kindergarten through third grade. And then we moved. And so I had to go to another public school for fourth grade. And then I was dying to go to this all boys school, which started in fifth grade, because my first house was at the bottom of a big hill. And every Saturday, I would run up the hill to go watch the varsity football game. And I wanted to go to that school. Got it. I'd become a big fan of the the Cadasco Rams, the Country Day School Rams. So I went to the all-boys oh. school for uh, fifth through ninth grade. And then uh, I transferred to a co-ed private school okay. th- uh, for 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. So that was five schools. I did play junior varsity football at, th- at th- the rivals of the co-ed school. It was arch-rivals with Country Day School. It was called John Burroughs. And I played varsity tennis. And I just got to say that It made a big, big impression on who I became. If you can imagine changing schools during those formative years of your life where, you know, learning who you are or trying to learn who you are, and then not even going to school with, with girls until 10th grade. Right. I think that the social Danny Meyer was developed out of necessity because of always having to put myself in a very different social situation where invariably I didn't know anyone at the beginning, or maybe I only knew one or two people, and then trying to find my place within that group.
0: And you're right in those formative years. Yeah. Okay, so I gotta ask you something, because what you're talking about is something I've felt a long time. Um, I don't talk to too many people about it, but I can remember the years between seventh grade and senior year in high school, vividly, I can remember everything that happened. And if you ask me what happened in college, my first job or my first wine job, I can't tell you. It's like it's a blur. But boy, you know, seventh, eighth grade, ninth grade, tenth, eleventh, twelfth,
1: absolutely. It's just
0: like are you are you I, the I'm same completely way? Completely like that. Okay. As a matter
1: of fact, Doug, I. To this day, you know, I'll be, I'll be driving my car and tuned into Sirius and I'll flip the, <laughs> the radio stations and if I get something from the 70s, there can be a song that will come on and take me exactly to where I was and sometimes it wasn't a good place. You know, sometimes right. there are songs that take me to a time when I go and I'll say to Audrey, I wasn't happy when that song came out right. or that was a great period in my life and it's just kind of amazing how, how, how those memories stick
0: well fast forward just for fun on the same theme i've been at schaefer for 35 years and i can remember the first six or seven years again vividly and those were the toughest years i walked into a mess had to clean it up i made another mess had to clean it up there was a fire drill every two weeks i can remember everything and then after that, from year six or seven on to now, again, it's a blur. was that do you have the same type of thing with when you open union square
1: i I think that my memory has a slight advantage over yours when it comes to work because we've done so many different projects good point meaning that i can I can absolutely relate to the the first ten years of my career there was one restaurant union right. Square cafe that's like having one baby for 10 years before you have a second kid, which was Gramercy Tavern. But those Gramercy Tavern years are deeply etched. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of scar tissues you know, right. from those early days. And then 11 Madison Park and Tabla, which opened within four weeks of each other. And then after that, um, you know, a They're profusion just... of new restaurants, whether it's Blue Smoke, The modern modern. uh, Shake Shack. Shake Shack, yeah. (laughs) Um, And then a bunch of places after that Myelino, North End Grill. Right, on and on. On and on. I won't name them all right now, but but we don't have enough time. (laughs) I I actually (laughs) have all these different you opportunities. You're triggers of my memory, and I can remember, and something that I've said many, many times is that creating restaurants there was a moment when we had four kids in four restaurants and people were joking. Now you have a restaurant for every kid. Right. Audrey said, why did you have to go compete with me and have more restaurants than than I have kids? (laughs) But, uh, restaurants like kids are really, really fun to conceive. Right. Um, they're not (laughs) all that much fun to manufacture (laughs) and you know, in the first six to 12 months, you don't get a lot of sleep. Yeah. But then they start to become rewarding after a while when you learn who they are and who they become. And one of the things I love about all these different restaurants, and by the way, you've done that with different wines. So right. even and though there's, there's one shape an well, well, there's vineyards, an, there's an evolution. every single wine you guys have created has its own story and backstory.
0: That's true. And, and then sure there's an evolution of style you. and you tweak it as you go on and, and uh, sometimes it becomes a little different thing you envisioned.
1: Right. But you, for yeah, example, good point. probably have stories about relentless. Right. You may not remember the year. You probably do because you have vintages, too. So yeah. Yeah, we've that's you're giving evolved. yourself short shrift. You have a great memory.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. All right. Well, sl-
1: slipping back after high school, co- where'd you go to college? I don't even know that. Well, college, okay. um, I was lucky to, to get in because I applied to only three schools. Princeton, where my dad and his father had gone, and I was rejected. Brown, which just seemed like the, the hotshot school that year, I was rejected there. And Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, oh, where I was right. waitlisted. So I was in nowhere, oh, and it was not a good day. Um, and my grandfather in Chicago was actually a trustee at the University of Chicago at that time. And my mom called and said, "Danny <laughs> yeah. didn't get in in anywhere." My <laughs> grandfather said, "Well, that's easy. Then he's coming to University of Chicago." And I said, "I'm not doing that. I'm not. It's 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 a great school, but." I, I don't want to spend the rest of my life feeling like
0: Granddad it was just helped, handed yeah. to me.
1: Right, and so I wrote probably the best letter I've ever written in my life. Got off the wait list at Trinity, and uh, in my freshman year there, pretty sure I got straight A's. I was pretty distracted at uh, having just joined this co-ed school in high school, of 10, 11, and 12. I wasn't really thinking about schoolwork too much. Understood. Who am I? How do I fit in with <laughs> right. with, with a whole new group of people, with girls for the girls first time ever? And, and uh, I didn't deserve to get into all these schools. Um, but I, in a weird way, that moment of not getting in anywhere has actually followed me around my whole life because... I seem to do my best work in anything when someone says, you're not measuring up. And some, interestingly, almost every single time we've opened a restaurant, with only one exception, which was Tabla, which got three stars from the New York Times right out of the right, gate. Right out of the gate, I remember. Every that. other restaurant has been sort of spanked by the critics right when it opens. And, wow. and it almost takes that in, a, in an odd way. I don't, I, I wish I could skip this step, but it almost takes someone saying, you're not measuring up for us to kick into a higher gear and to say, oh yeah, wait, do you see what we do? Just just give us some time. And that's been the case with my life almost all the time. I'm not a fast starter. You tell me I can't do it and I'll, I'll pull our team together and, yeah. and we'll show you we, yeah. that we can. I can relate. I can relate. I can, have, I can, yeah, I'm, I'm I can remember the early days. You, no, no. Do you ever have wines that yeah. you taste them out of the barrel, and they're not that great, and then they take years, but they stitch together, and they're some of the best wines you've ever made? Uh, mm, doesn't, or is, is that a bad? No,
0: it doesn't work with wine that way. Because once it's made, you're there. I mean, that's why you know we're in harvest right now. Elias is you know not getting any sleep. Because it's all right then. That first, um, when you pick the grapes, How you ferment them, what yeast, how you treat it early on, getting it to barrels, Um, mostly you know ripeness of picking is what we've learned about, and if you don't nail that, you're just against the you're against the eight ball the whole way, and uh, so wines don't change that much from when you make them. What what we learned, our challenge was trying to figure out how to do that first step, that first three or four or five weeks when you first pick the grapes and make the wine. And here's, (laughs) you know, all that, all these chefs get all these accolades, you know, the star chef, you know, you know, easy peasy, you know, they get, they miss, they mess up the sauce one night, hey, the next night they get another shot. Unbelievable. Winemaking, one shot a year, baby, one shot. And it's like, if you don't hit it you're toast and if and 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 then you you pay for it because that wine's not as good as it could have been and you have to wait a whole year to do it again so the learning curve on winemaking is one year at a time
1: and expensive expensive and right. that's
0: yeah and that's that's tough and i can i can kind of relate it's like you know we didn't do it. we got to do this better you know and so that's why harvest it's fun, it's joyous and all that, but man, the pressure's on. And we know it. And it's like when we started making good wine, I remember Elias came to me one time and said, Man, you know, the pressure's really on every year because we've got to nail it. And we you only know, have you've one shot. have had the
1: pressure on ever since that famous mm-hmm. wine you guys took to, to Europe in 1974, was it? Well,
0: it was a 78. 78. the 78. It was Dad's first wine, the 78 Cab, which yeah. won everything. And he's, you know, for years, he would come into the have Elias and me during harvest and, when are you guys going to make a 78? Well, yeah, it's what like, did you oh, guys God. do? <laughs> Still brings it up. Um, That's a guy who didn't drink wine growing uh, pretty up. Pretty funny. Um, so Trinity College, so
1: after college, right into the food business? Not at all. Not, Not at all. all? What happened? No, I mean, I was, I was absolutely in love with restaurants. And as a matter of fact, at Trinity, I spent a semester in Rome. I was a poli-sci major. Okay. And Trinity has a campus in Rome where we were studying international politics Um, and of course I made international politics my minor that semester and spent all my time as a major going to trattorias so I always loved food but in those days nobody thought about no one my age in that era with a liberal arts education was saying oh I'm going to go be a restaurateur right and so uh, what we ended up doing was I, I was starting to think about should I should I do the expected thing and get a law degree which is what you're supposed to do after poli sci right, sci right I thought for a little I love politics um, matter of fact i lived in Chicago right after graduating uh, Trinity right and I worked for an independent presidential candidate in 1980 named John Anderson
0: I remember that
1: and John oh, Anderson yeah. had lost the Republican primaries to Ronald Reagan Okay. and decided, okay, but I'm still going to run because I'm a different kind of candidate. And I loved his politics. He was Mm -hmm. fiscally conservative, socially progressive. And I got a job in Chicago that nobody with my lack of experience would have gotten with a Democrat or a Republican because there was no organization. So I was Cook Cook County field coordinator, which was a big deal. Keep in mind, Cook County is what delivered John Kennedy the the presidency in 1960. And we got seven and a half percent of the vote, which was enough for me to get my matching um, fund. So I got my last paycheck of $214 a week. (laughs) But with that campaign, I actually learned one of the most important leadership and management skills of my life, which I still use. Everyone who worked for me was a volunteer, right? I was 22 years old. Most of the people working for me were older than I was. I didn't have the opportunity to reward someone with a paycheck or a raise. I didn't have the opportunity to punish someone for not having done their job. Right. right. And what it taught me more than anything was that even when I became a business person and I was paying people, that I still wanted to treat people as if they were volunteering to work here. And I still wanted to give people a higher purpose for their job other than the task itself. And I think that we want to hire people at, at Union Square Hospitality Group and at all of our restaurants who are good enough that they probably could have gotten another 10 or 15 job offers somewhere else. And so the fact that they chose to work here is in its own way, a form of volunteering, Right. To, volunteering to bring their gifts to us. And so I think that lesson, which was the first time I was ever anyone's boss, minus being able to pay them, is something that has carried through how I, I lead today. Okay,
0: this is so great. I love, I love doing these, these shows. I mean, I'm finding out, you know, I've known you 30 years and you know, I didn't know about that. We need to have more meals together. And,
1: well, we need to have more wine ooh, together. We need more wine together. <laughs> I'll provide the food. You just keep bringing oh. that great Schaefer.
0: <laughs> so after John Anderson, um, somehow you got into the food business.
1: So after John Anderson, I was pretty burned out because when you work in politics, you realize that, you know, once that first Tuesday in November hits every single day leading up to that first Tuesday in November is a day that you didn't raise quite enough money. You didn't reach quite enough voters and you're just burned out and and it's kind of sad and it's a great team effort, but that was the moment when I said, all right, you gotta get your life together. You gotta do something here." that's, uh, you know, either either get your law degree. I was also fascinated with journalism. Um, and I thought maybe I'd go get a journalism degree and I started looking at schools. I went to Berkeley school of journalism Mm -hmm. and, um, Northwestern school of journalism and I wasn't quite ready. So, but I, but I did, Spent a lot of time in New York City when I was up at Trinity in Hartford. Loved jazz here. Loved the restaurants. Actually, loved going to the horse races at Belmont Park. Going to love going to theater. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, just just do a year in New York and see what happens. So I got a job, a bizarre job. The same grandfather who was trying to hook me up with the University of right. Chicago. This time I I took him up on something and he helped me get a. Sixteen thousand, sixteen thousand five hundred $16,500 a year job, <laughs> um, working as a special assistant at a new company that he had invested in a public a newly public company, okay, called checkpoint systems. This is a bizarre tale in my story. But checkpoint systems uh, is one of the leading companies that makes the electronic tags that, that stop shoplifters, right. in in retail stores. Got it. And they had come up with this product that I found kind of neat, which was that instead of only having those white tags with pins in them, you know, adhere to people's clothing, they had a printed circuit on a pressure sensitive label that could look like a price tag, which meant that you could now protect supermarkets and libraries and uh, drugstores where you obviously can't stick a pin in a book. Right. But you could put one of these pressure sensor labels in a book. And about six or eight months into my time at Checkpoint Systems, I got an apartment in New York City. I was commuting down to thoroughfare New Jersey of all places every now and then. Got it. The New York City, um, salesperson left to go to the competition and Checkpoint handed me the entire New York <laughs> territory, which included New Jersey, Westchester County, Putnam County, Orange oh, County, Long Island, all five boroughs. And I just crushed it. I, I became the company's top salesman for three years in a row. And, I and, never knew this. Yeah, and it was a great experience um, in two ways. Number one is I was I was a kid who actually, when I say a kid, I was still pretty young yeah. back then. I was in my early 20s still lacked a little bit of the kind of self-confidence I would need. And putting yourself out there in a sales job, cold calling, mostly hanging out in some of New York city's worst neighborhoods where shoplifting was, was the highest learning to, to negotiate with retailers who are some of the toughest negotiators in all of New York, opening up some big national accounts, um, like Dwayne Reed and Burlington Coat factory and Shoprite. Um, And then ultimately doing a lot of traveling because they wanted me to share whatever sales gifts I had with, with other folks around the country. And I got to say, making a lot of money. Um, I was really, really driven by commission. Got it. And, uh, by the time I was 23, I was taking home, I think $125,000 a year. Wow. With no one to support. And I just would spend almost all of my time. Keep in mind, this was obviously before the internet. But I would plot out my sales calls throughout New York based on where I wanted to eat lunch that day. <laughs> and I was learning about all the different neighborhoods. Sometimes I would eat ethnic food. Sometimes I'd go, just go to a Greek diner. Uh, Popeye's fried chicken had just come to New York. So the food, the, so the food thing is that's still... Couldn't get that's, it out of my couldn't mind. Get enough. And, and I was always cooking at home and Got entertaining it. friends. And finally, just what this leads up to is after three years of selling anti-shoplifting tags and, you know, dealing with some pretty unsavory characters. I got to tell you one story. I was in a, <laughs> I was in a supermarket in, uh, in Detroit. Uh, I think it was a giant supermarket and I'd been training the entire staff there, not only how to use these things, but what do you do when you catch someone shoplifting? You yeah, got to train did. the whole thing. Oh boy. And I'm in, I'm in line in the, uh, in the supermarket and I'm about to be working with the cashier. Cause how does she you have to actually deactivate the tag when someone actually buys the thing Got so it. they don't beep on the way out. Right. That wasn't so easy. So all of a sudden the guy in front of me is bleeding in his head. Oh. And and I'm going like, Uh oh, this is not good. He's bleeding. And and finally he gets up. He goes out the door and he had been stuffing steaks underneath his hat and he gets caught right there. <laughs> under his hat? Under his hat. I've seen and in the and coat and down the there, pants, there was, but under his I hat. saw enough stories like that as well as you, you may or may not know it, but almost every department store in New York has a jail in the basement. No. And you know, hanging out with unsavory people in the clinker in the basement. I just finally said, okay, I, I did it. That's enough. And now it's now it's time to get my law degree. It's time to go get real at this point. I'm and with I, you,
0: I gotta ask you though, because I'm not a restaurant, I've been in back doors of restaurants. Do restaurants have jails in the basement? We've I, never okay. put one in dog.
1: <laughs> We do have wine cellars, but that's a whole lot okay. more fun than a jail. Okay. But anyway, um, it was literally having taken the Stanley Kaplan uh, LSAT class. It was okay. on the eve of taking my LSATs. I was out to dinner with my right. aunt and uncle and my grandmother. And I was in a shitty mood because yeah. Yeah. they're all drinking Chianti and having really good pasta, and and I was in a foul mood because a I couldn't drink and b I had to take my LSATs the next Saturday the next, morning, right. the next morning, and it was my uncle uh, Richard Polsky, whose art uh, adorns That's Union right. Square That's right. Cafe um, to this day. Who turned to me and he said, "I don't know what's bothering you, but what's going on here?" Right. And I said, well, I gotta take my LSATs tomorrow. And he said, well, of course you do. You wanna be a lawyer? And I said, actually, I don't. And he got furious with me. Oh, and he wow. said, do you not realize that you're gonna be dead forever and you're gonna be alive for a moment relative to how long, why in the world would you do something you don't wanna do? And I said, cause I don't know what else I would do or could do. And he was the guy at that meal. This was in 1983, who said, you gotta be crazy. All I've ever heard you talk about your whole life is restaurants and food. Why don't you just go open a restaurant? And it had never, ever, ever dawned on me that that was a... A possibility. A valid career do. choice. Yeah. So I took the LSAT the next morning, never applied anywhere. I probably did poorly on the test. My heart wasn't in. Of course not. But that next Monday, which... I applied to take a class at the New York restaurant school, which is probably not even in business anymore. <laughs> And I hooked up with a pal from from Trinity, and I said, you be the money guy. I'll be the food guy. Let's do this. And he was working in a bank at the time. He didn't tell his parents because he knew they wouldn't approve. Right. They caught wind of it after three classes and said, no son of ours is going into that nasty business. And he felt so bad that he introduced me to the only client his bank had, a restaurant called Pesca, Okay. On 22nd Street right I got a job there I remember pesca okay I was the assistant lunch manager okay earning 250 bucks a week big, <laughs> big, big decrease from what I'd been doing at checkpoint and it turned out that I and I said to myself just do it just get it out of your system you're either gonna hate it or you're gonna love it right and I did it and I loved it and that was where I met Michael Romano who became our chef your for many shepherd. many years that's where I met a young actress who was waiting tables named Audrey Heffernan who became my wife, oh. the mother of our four kids. And that's where I met my career. And, and At I can Peska. actually see it out the window right now as we're talking. It's just, it's kind of neat how that all worked out. Wow. So and you just, can I just say something you yeah. kind of think about how life presents so many doors that you didn't expect to be there. And I, and I think back to what, What if I had never gotten off the wait list at Trinity? What if I, what if on the very first day of Trinity, when there was a pickup softball game outside the dorm, and we ran out of baseball gloves, and so I had to lend my glove to this guy, and this guy lost my glove, and this guy was the same one who introduced me to Pesca many years later, (laughs) um, who became one of my best friends. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have met my career, I wouldn't have met my wife, and it just, the different ways that life can go, and, and... and all, and all of that came out of the adversity of, of almost not even getting into any college whatsoever. So I, I think about that a lot because we are all, you know, we're dealt some good cards and some tough cards. But sometimes some of the best things come out of the tough cards you're dealt mm-hmm. unexpectedly.
0: Yeah. I do have a good memory because I've got a bunch of things flooding back right now. It's like, yeah, at the time.
1: Can I hear one of yours? <laughs>
0: One of mine, one of the toughest, was uh, being early on at Schaefer. I walked into a mess that, uh, that my predecessor had left. And so cleaned that up <clears throat> over a couple years. Hired Elias. Um, but that was easy because that was a mess someone else made. But then within about a year or two after cleaning it up, I made my own mess. I had a couple wines that I made. I was the winemaker. I made them aged them bottled them and before we released them there were two wines uh realized they were really flawed i mean really flawed like like smelled so bad It was a hydrogen sulfide thing you know about that but in the bottle it got really worse the only good thing is we caught it before we released it these two wines but we had to re-bottle them and Rebottling means you're pulling corks on seven thousand cases of wine, and we did it by hand, and dumped them back into a tank, and did some blending, and fixed the sulfide problem, rebottled them, and uh, funny, funny ending to the story. A year later, it was the um, what years? It? it was the '85 Merlot and '84 Cab. Rebottled them; they were fine, but it had to filter them, bottle them again, the whole thing, which, you know, we really beat them up. And uh, released them. I like the
1: timing of the sirens coming. Yeah, the the, sirens, because it was a
0: fire drill. We got a fire drill. And uh, a year later, in the December 15th issue of the Wine Spectator, which was my birthday, December 15th, I remember this well, both wines were reviewed. One got 92 points and one got 93 points. And it was like, I looked at Elias and said, this is a really crazy business, man. But the point is... It, I've never been so low in my life. These are, you know, I I failed. And um, but basically, it made me a better winemaker, because it's like, I'm never gonna let that happen again. And what else could possibly happen? Because I'm never so I mean, I became the master of check it once, check it twice, check it three times, you know, and Elias as he took over, I said, check it once, check it twice. You know, whatever that process is and additions Mm -hmm. and all that, because it's like that's never going to. And that, I think, has helped helped us get to the quality level we got to. And it's a beautiful thing.
1: And speaking of quality, my favorite way to describe Schaefer uh, (laughs) is one of basically three wineries in the world. I know that do not know how to make a bad wine. Hmm. I don't know. So, thank goodness that you had that experience. So,
0: I've got to ask you a question. So, Dad met you. My recollection is Dad met you at Union Square early on, right? You'd started. And I remember he came home because he was traveling. I was dealing with wines. And he comes in the cellar after his trip. He goes, I met this kid. I met this kid. He just opened a restaurant. His name's Danny Meyer. He's really neat. He's really cool. You've got to meet him. You've got to meet him. And then I think within a year or two, you came out and... That's when we start off, but I want to Makes ask sense. you, a, I want to ask you a question, a personal question. Do you remember meeting my dad and what was your impression of, I'm just a selfish question here, what was your impression, oh, I of, totally what, what, remember what, it. what was he like? So,
1: we were trying to, uh, you know, back in those days, the the um, mid-80s, right. when Union Square Cafe opened, believe it or not, I know this sounds crazy, but California wines were still not a huge, huge thing. Oh, we couldn't sell New wine in New York. We couldn't sell wine I know wine that here. sounds yeah. crazy. No, but no, it's true. It was all European wines. And here, so remember. we decided at Union Square Cafe that the power of storytelling, whether it's where did this recipe come from or where did this ingredient come from, certainly where did the, the wine come from, that I wanted to share stories with people and, mm-hmm. and educate people and hope that they would spend more time enjoying wine and food in the restaurant. So we came up with this idea first on Saturday lunches, because we weren't open back then for Saturday lunch. And then Sunday dinners, because back then we were not open on Sunday nights, of having either a wine lunch or a wine dinner. Okay, And we would bring in winemakers. The one that I remember just almost like it was yesterday was the Stag's Leap. Uh, district the lunch, group. okay, and we brought in your dad and Warren Winarski, okay, and um, Bernard Bernard Porte, Porte from, from Claude, Claude Duval. Duval. and Dick Stelzner. Dick Stelzner.
0: Those were the those were the four horsemen. Those yeah, those are the, they're, they're
1: the guys. <laughs> I remember it, and okay. and so it was a Saturday lunch. It's completely sold out. Hmm. And what I uh, looked, it was all the wines were good. Schaefer was the best all the winemakers were nice. Your dad was the nicest hmm. and it could have been that we connected because we're both Midwesterners. It could be that, that I stood out as being a nicer than usual New Yorker because <laughs> I actually was not a New Yorker. I have to say, I think New York's become a much nicer place it has. than it was in the I, 1980s. I it was that. kind of scary back yeah. then. And, um, we just hit it off and, and it was a combination of, um, look, I love your dad. I loved him the first time I met him. Genuine, generous. And I've always, you know, when I tell stories about wine, when I tell stories about any chef, I've always believed that there is a complete straight line between who someone is and the product that they make. Hmm. And when you have someone who is authentic, and generous you're gonna get an authentic and generous wine in the glass you just are um, or, you, or, a,
0: or a meal in a restaurant from I the think chef. So,
1: I, I, I do think so yeah. I think when when you understand the motive for why someone's in business for the first way look your dad's a, a very very smart and insightful business person but just because he picked your place your premier place in the Napa Valley hmm. And said this industry at this time and in fact this specific place is where it's at there's a genius there that's Mm -hmm. one thing yeah but then the way you do business thereafter and the commitment to quality and the commitment to building relationships as you guys have done brilliantly throughout the world so that when someone sees the label that says Schaefer It means a lot. And and let let me just say one more thing. When somebody buys a bottle of wine in a restaurant and that bottle of wine is sitting on their table Mm -hmm. for all to see, it becomes a billboard that says as much about you and your taste as the car you drive or the watch you wear or the shoes you wear or the purse you carry. And I, and I think that what the Schaefer label says when I see that on someone's table is I want the best. Uh, there, There is not a better quality wine at this price, and they're not inexpensive, but they are way better at their price point than many, many other wines that cost a lot more. And that tells me that I'm smart when I buy that wine. <laughs> I and I think it's an no, amazing, and, well, and I think you. that all uh, starts with who your dad is. I really do.
0: Thank you. I was just, I appreciate that. That was a personal question there I need to hear. So jumping ahead, 91, 92. I'm on a bit of a boondoggle cruise in the Baltic. It's the only time I've ever done a winemaker cruise. So it's 10 days on a boat. Well, they call them ships. It was, it was a small one, but very exclusive 200 people. And I was the vintner. And then there was a chef for the week and i'm and the the chef was tom Calicchio, and who i did not know but i had to do a couple of wine seminars and a dinner and he had to do a cooking presentation he had one day in finland where they went to the market and go go with tom to the market to look at the fresh vegetables which there weren't any at that time of the year or whatever it was it was kind of funny but of the instead of having 200 people on this ship there's only 28 so it was empty so I got uh, to you know, well, Well, actually 28 people, you know, by the time, you know, my wine seminar came around, everybody just laughed because I knew everybody. It was a lot of fun. But I got to know Calicchio really well. And they had just closed Mondrian. But we had a great time. And uh, we stayed in touch. When i come back, I'd see him once a while. And one time I came back within about a year or so, and he says, hey, I got this new thing. And we were having dinner. He goes, let me show, let me show you the spot. So we drove down to where Gramercy is now. It was dark. It was a dark night in the glass windows. They said, yeah, I'm, I'm working with Danny. I think this is going to happen. And a year later, I came back and how's it going? He goes, well, let's go look at the spot. And it was still dark. And, and I said, yeah, is it going to happen? He goes, well, I think it's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to happen. That wasn't a year later. Come on. OK, it wasn't. All right. Whatever. <laughs> but it, it took a while. But it was cute. But it, but this was your second child. And it was nine years after Union Square. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to you at the time, and it was nerve wracking for you. It was a big deal. because I.
1: You're you want things to be perfect, yeah. like well, we Carvercy all do, Tavern. and as and, and it's a yeah, absolutely. And you know, I was huge, huge fan of Tom's cooking at Mondrian, mm-hmm. right? And we had actually gotten to know each other because I was heading up the Share Our Strength Taste of the Nation back in 1990 and 1991, mm-hmm. and he was my favorite chef right. by far. And, and he also cared a lot about the topic of childhood hunger. It wasn't just his food. Although I remember exactly what he cooked at the first one, which was a, uh, it was a parfait with sea urchin and um, curry and mashed potatoes, which is kind of odd, but it was really, really delicious.
0: Man, how can you pull that back? That just blows me away. So
1: no, that was that was amazing. But Gramercy Tavern was nerve wracking because I was trying to prove to myself that I was not an impostor. I thought okay. Union Square Cafe's success had been a fluke that somehow it had been handed to me. I have no idea why I felt that way. Handed to you, you built it. You but I felt I just felt oh. a need to go prove that it had not been a fluke. And and so okay, all right. And to this day, Doug, I, I think that some of the most successful restaurants, and probably this is true of other businesses, are when the core team of people responsible for running it mm-hmm. each have something to prove. So I think part of the reason Gramercy Tavern became such a success, and it was not overnight. We were busy overnight, but we got slammed by the press uh, at the beginning. Just slammed. Tom had something to prove. He had to prove that right. Mondrian going out of business was not his fault. It was not his deal. I had right. to prove that you Union could- Square Cafe was not a fluke. Claudia Fleming, who was our opening pastry chef, who is remarkable to right. this day, right. had to prove that the restaurant she had cooked at, which had closed, wasn't her wasn't fault. her fault. And it's kind of neat, you know. We had an we had an opening service and wine director named Steve Olson. I remember who, Olson, who great. had a lot yeah. to prove. He yeah, had yeah. to prove that, you know, even though he had come from Arizona at that point, that he could
0: make it in the big he city. Could make it in the big city, mm-hmm.
1: and everybody seemed to look at Gramercy Tavern as being their platform for doing their best work. And I think that's what I try to do when building a team with a new restaurant is to not only seek people who've got a lot of talent, but who at this point in their career actually has something to prove. And it doesn't have to be an unhealthy thing to have a little chip on your shoulder. I don't know, I'm with you. I bet you had to do that. You know, when your dad showed you the 1978, you had to prove you could do oh, it yeah. too. Well, and, and then I'm, after that wine, you were just describing.
0: Well, and also... Um, I talked to Kathy Corson a while back and she was cute. She was we were talking about her era and she was right ahead of me. She said, you know, things were booming in Napa. And she said the the ladder was it was a short ladder to become a winemaker. I mean, you're one or two years in a cellar and all of a sudden you're a winemaker where today that's changed. You know, it might take you seven or eight or nine years to be a winemaker because there's all these new places. So she's so the, the learning curve was short and steep for her and for all of us. It was for me. Especially, I've, I think I've always had something. But you know, I'm like I'm like the son. Did I get it on my merit or I did? Because it's a family thing. That's a, you know, it's I probably won't admit that readily, but that's probably in the back of my mind.
1: Sure. I mean, um, if that motivates you to do even better, sure, the world wins. Do, did you know? Did you do that on
0: purpose? Hiring these people, or is this it was just turning and looking back at now? It's, I
1: think it's looking back yeah. on it now, um, because yeah, I, I just I think that there's. There's magic in that bottle called Gramercy Tavern to this Mm -hmm. day. And and I think that uh, I do to that, you know, we just had a leadership retreat for Union Square Hospitality Group earlier this week. We took all of our chefs and GMs and, you know, a bunch of the people who run USHG down to Asbury Park, New Jersey for two days. And we covered a lot of territory. But I really try to encourage people to look at this job as being their platform to do their best work professionally and personally. And it's hard. It's hard. We ask a lot of you, we ask you not only to be constantly looking at every day as an opportunity to improve what you do, but to look at every day as an opportunity to improve who you are while you're doing it. And that's a lot. That's a a lot to ask.
0: Yeah. So Gramercy hits and runs. And then a few years later, I've never asked you this question. I've always wanted to ask you because 11 Madison and Tabla opened at with, on this within
1: four weeks of each other
0: so i gotta ask you as a good friend and i love you when i say this but
1: what were you thinking <laughs> <laughs> yeah what, what the hell was i thinking you know those were um here's what i was thinking I, I was thinking about how much work we had done with union square cafe to help revitalize union square park supporting the green right. market right and when I saw this opportunity to have an op or really the, the, the chance to invest in a park that had been ignored forever, Madison square park, mm-hmm. which nobody even knew in New York, right. you just passed by it. It was, it, it was sort of dangerous, but it was definitely forgettable. Right. I As agree. a matter of fact, Madison square garden, the original Madison Square Garden was on Madison Square Park. That's where the original Madison Square Garden got its name. I didn't but no know one that. knew that. I didn't know that. No one knew that. Okay. And I loved the opportunity to actually have windows on a park, which Union Square Cafe never did, Right. and to really get into that park early. And so the very first conversation we had with our landlord, which was MetLife at the time, was even before we talked about the terms of our lease, we said, would you join us in revitalizing Madison Square Park? And they said, we will, but it won't work because we've tried for many years and the city never supports us. And I said, you just wait, if you can support financially, I'll support through some leadership. And together we raised $11 million to restore Madison Square Park. We passed the hat to you know, lots of businesses that overlook the park, mm-hmm. New York Life, Credit Suisse, First Boston at the time, and, and we did it. And and now we had two restaurants overlooking the park. For mm-hmm. the third straight time, I named a restaurant after a park. We had Union Square, Gramercy, Gramercy. and now Madison, right. uh, 11 Madison Park. And the only reason we did two restaurants, which I never would have done, is that it's, it was a historic building and there was a dividing wall that could not come down. And so there was a necessity to do two restaurants at once. That's right. I'd and forgotten at that time. That. I Michael for, Romano I had, I had was that. completely in love with everything. Indian spices, That's right. women, Indians. food, everything. <laughs> and I said, Michael, get those Indian spices out of union square cafe. They do not go with our <laughs> wine cellar and let's create a restaurant that, that, can, that shows that so Indian showcase flavors, that. showcase that can, yeah can be modernized. And that became Tabla. So if I had really thought it out, I never would have done two restaurants at the same time, but But it it was irresistible to do it it on this park. And then that led to Shake Shack. Wow, those
0: two work. Well, okay, so I'm pausing here because I collect my thoughts. So there's a wonderful woman that sells Schaefer wine here in Manhattan. You know her, Coral Fernandez, and she's you know, probably sells more Schaefer than anyone in the she's whole got world the every year. she job in the city. Well, yeah, yeah, she's got some great accounts, but she always has had, you know, the, all your restaurants, the, all your uh, Union Square restaurants have, has been hers. And uh, whenever I come to town, I try to come up with new ideas to meet trade, you know, the typical trade luncheon with five or six people in a restaurant with five or six sommeliers, beverage managers, which is great, we do it all the time. And, and then one time she said, hey, we should do this in the park at Shake Shack. And I said, what's Shake Shack? She goes, oh, Danny's got this place over in the park. It's, you know, burgers and french fries. And we'll, you know.
1: And half bottles you know, of half Schaefer. Half bottles of Schaefer. We,
0: we, can, we can bring in some more stuff if we can figure out how to do it. We never did do it. But but I'll never forget, we talked about it for two or three years. It's like Shake Shack. We should go do a, you know, trade lunch at Shake Shack in the park. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, the thing just blows up. So, I gotta hear the story because I don't think it was just gonna be a one spot deal, wasn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, it was never even gonna be a one spot deal. What what happened was when we were planning or, or the, seasonal even, yeah. When we were planning the restoration of the park, we had always hoped that there would one day be some type of food there. But the city reneged on its promise, and the promise was that if there were food in the park, okay. that a percentage of every sale would go back into Madison Square Park because my vision was to have a self-sustaining park. right right and the Smart. city reneged saying if you have food there that money will go to the New York City Parks Department at large which actually goes to New York City's budget at large oh, no And so we just said if you don't get back to your deal there just won't be any food so we parked it for a while the idea for food okay however We then came up with the idea of having modern art in the park to join uh, Madison square park actually has the city's best collection of, of 19th century sculptures. All these old dead people that (laughs) you've never even heard of half of them. It does. And unlike union square park, there's no plaza for a green market. So how do you get people to use this newly beautiful park? And we said maybe art would do it to this day. Madison square park has extraordinary, Art shows yeah in fact it'll be in the Venice Biennale which uh, next May which is incredible anyway the very one of the very first artists that we brought in was a sculptor from Thailand we were working with the public art fund of New York City and this guy had this crazy idea to have two New York City taxicabs on stilts <laughs> and he dressed up a hot dog cart to look like a taxi cab and they needed somebody to operate the hot dog cart and so I said, well, we'll do it. We'll, we'll cook stuff out of the private dining room kitchen at 11 Madison park. And my team looked at me like I was crazy and I said, no, let's actually test this theory of hospitality. Cause I'm sick of people saying hospitality is only for fancy restaurants, right? I want to see if we can actually show that it works even with something like a hot dog cart. So they came along with the deal. We took, Four out of season co checkers, <laughs> summer of two thousand one. Okay, which was the summer of Gary Condit, oh, if you remember that. Yeah, leading yes, up to the yes. awful things that happened here um, in September of uh, two thousand one. But we we opened this hot dog cart. We cook Chicago style hot dogs, and the reason we picked that as an idea is a I love them, right? And b they've got eight toppings, and I wanted to prove that we could remember. Everybody's everybody's got a way they like it different like I like everything except pickle relish right and you like everything except Sport peppers or whatever, right? And so we did it and we got Vienna beef hot dogs in from Chicago. That's all it was yeah we did a couple other things like homemade beet stained potato chips and lemon verbena iced tea right and rice crisp homemade rice crispy treats (laughs) that was it though and you know a hundred people would be in line Literally every single day for this hot dog cart what did what was that that must have blown you did that blow you away totally I mean it did we, yeah. were, it was, we took something that was really <laughs> just meant to be fun um, I think there's a uh, there's a little hot dog cart sitting in my window right it. over there, it. which is yeah. that's kind of where it all started. <laughs> And So anyway, we did this the next year. There was a new artist But the community said can you please bring back that hot dog card? It made us happy and everyone was pretty depressed in 2002 right economically emotionally right. and then 2003 they said can you bring it back again and we did and um, <laughs> And then finally in 2004 We went to the city actually we did this in late 2003 and we said how about if we make this thing permanent and we will philanthropically gift a kiosk to the park. The park will then become our landlord. Okay. If all of the proceeds of the rent can go into the park, we will own the business, but the park will now own the building and therefore collect the rent. the rent and wouldn't it be a neat thing if we could draw people to the park from 11 in the morning till 11 at night, keeping the park safe, wouldn't it be a neat thing if we could come up with an idea that, you know, was broadly accessible mm-hmm. to people price wise, right? Concept wise. And wouldn't it be a neat thing if that actually raised money for the park? Now we had no idea and we called it Shake Shack and we had absolutely no idea that it would work. In fact, the other thing we, you know, we basically said, let's take our hot dogs, and we're just going to, I just sketched out a menu on the back of a, of a, a scrap paper, which right. we now have framed. And that menu is 90% of what's on Shake Shack's menu today. All we basically did was add burgers and frozen custard and yeah. fries to what we were already doing with, you know, the hot dogs and the same drink menu, et cetera and Shake Shack took off. And we still didn't think about it as being a scalable business. Although the, the the backstory here, Doug, is that we were using Eleven Madison Park's wine cellar as the office for Shake Shack. <laughs> and a lot, we developed the Shack Burger and developed all of our recipes in the private dining room of Eleven Madison Park. Shake Shack was actually subsidizing Eleven Madison Park for a full four years, without which I'm gonna, I'm going to pretty much come out and say 11 Madison Park may have gone out of business. Um as Tabla did, Tabla did go out of business in 2011. But Shake Shack was because Shake Shack yeah, was funding 11 Madison Park. Interesting. And then finally we bought Shake Shack from 11 from us from but us. we gave the <laughs> proceeds to 11 Madison Park. Okay. And Shake Shack became its own independent company after it's that. A,
0: it's its own company Yeah, now. so
1: it's it's a great story. It's it's fantastic. And there's, my and count, a there's, nice a, business a, out of
0: there's it. 168 Shake Shacks around the world. There
1: were, but we didn't open a second one for five years.
0: For five years. And the
1: only reason we opened the second one, I shouldn't say the only reason, but a primary reason was, if there was one recurring complaint about Shake Shack in those early years, it was... The line is too damn long. <laughs> and so we decided, wouldn't it be great I if, heard that. I if, heard that all the time. If we could yeah. cannibalize ourselves by opening a second one oh. and mitigate the line. Where was the second one? The second one is uh, 77th in Columbus. Okay. The line only got longer at number one when we opened number two. Oh, Danny. Because more people knew about it. And now oh. we had a tiger by the tail. What? You? Oh. And <laughs> so... I, s- I still think the second Shake Shack... Deserves a lion's share of the credit because if that had not worked there wouldn't be a company, right? This, you know, it's kind of like Gramercy Tavern for me. The second right. one proved that the proved first that you one could was do not it and then off you go Yeah
0: 168 all over the world. Seoul, Tokyo, London, Hong Kong, Moscow, Beirut, Dubai and Recently Southern California yeah. and soon Northern California soon. We were talking about that or any minute any minute. Just
1: open in Seattle Okay uh, very, very recently, we just announced that we'll be opening in Mexico, um, Great. Philippines. Yeah, it's it's really cool <laughs> to see how this <laughs> culture works everywhere.
0: It's incredible. Well, good on Seattle because I just took uh, number four to school. Just dropped him off three Qua- weeks ago.
1: Cuatro in Seattle. Yeah, University of Washington. Yeah, he's oh, a Husky. That's a beautiful school.
0: He's he. We have launched him successfully, and um, you know, we got the meal plan right. And and they've got great options compared to when you and I went to school. I mean, there's, they've got all sorts of things. And all of a sudden, you know, we see, you know I need more money in my other account, other kind. We'd look to think of, he's going, <laughs> you know, he's 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 going into Seattle and eating at great restaurants. It's like, you, take, you know, you who did you think you were bringing? Well, up? Yeah, yeah. So you know, we we're kind of rein that in. But uh, that's been fun. Um, hospitality, which uh, I got to ask you because. What was the moment? I mean, you have great restaurants, great food, great service, but you know, early on, and your main theme has been hospitality and service. Was there a moment that triggered that, or mm-hmm. is it just all the moments put together?
1: Well, it's all the moments put together. I think growing up in St. Louis made me realize that the restaurants I fell in love with in retrospect were actually nicer than they were yummy in, in many cases. Hmm. The, the food revolution now has hit St. Louis, but... It really hadn't when I was growing up, but thank goodness, because that's where all the ideas for things like Blue Smoke and Shake Shack came from. Right. But nonetheless, I think working for my dad as a tour guide in Rome one summer and realizing that I'd be with these, I'd pick up these cranky jet lag tourists at the airport in the morning and I had this innate desire and ability to turn the crankiest into the happiest five days later. And I wasn't still thinking about it all that consciously till another thing happened, which was, I think, in the 1980s. It was really when we started hearing about chefs as celebrities. And a lot of the food journalists were writing about these chefs as personalities. Um, And you would go to these restaurants helmed by these famous chefs, and they weren't very nice to you at the restaurant. And it started this dichotomy of the kind of restaurant... I just started asking, why can't you get great food at a place that's also nice? (laughs) A simple question. And I think it it was 1995 when soon after opening Gramercy Tavern Mm -hmm. that I actually named it for the first time because that was when we had two restaurants for the first time. So Danny couldn't be at the front door, wherever I was, I was not at the other. And every time I went to Gramercy Tavern in those early days, something different happened there that I would not have done. We were not being generous with, with guests. Uh, we weren't trusting people. And it occurred, and, I, and my stomach was just completely upset. Uh, as a matter of fact, our bookkeeper, who is now bookkeeping for both restaurants, mm-hmm. I went in early one morning and he had two sets of keys on his desk. One. Had a smiley face, a yellow smiley face, and one had a yellow frowning face, and I said, "What the hell's that?" Yeah, and he said, "Well, you know, the frowning face is Gramercy Tavern because that's how we're treating people here, and the smiley face oh. is Union Square Cafe." You're kidding! And that was—I called wow. an all-staff meeting, and and that was the first time I named hospitality as something that we were going to really be differentiating from service, because service. Um, And this had been brewing in my mind. Union Square Cafe won the James Beard Award for Outstanding Service in America in 1992. Right. I once again felt like an imposter because I knew there were way better, more refined service techniques in other restaurants across the country. And I knew that service as a word was not capturing what we were actually being rewarded for. And, yeah, the service is good at Union Square Cafe, but it was how we were making people feel, not the technical service, but the emotional Hospitality the emotional how you feel when and you leave that was right. when I basically said Look performance. How good the food is. Yeah. how beautiful the choreography of the decanting of the wine is All that gets if you do that all perfectly the performance including service You get 49 points maximum which leaves 51 points if you want to get a hundred on your test right for how did you make someone feel while you're doing all this and all this was coming together every year because back then the only feedback we got on an annual basis was the Zagat the survey and I kept seeing Union Square Cafe rising and rising and mm-hmm. rising in the category called New York's favorite restaurants but it would always hover around ten or eleven for food and service right and I didn't understand how we could be New York's favorite restaurant when so many restaurants below us actually had, on that list, actually had higher scores for food and service. Food and service. And certainly decor. And that's the year that I said, guess what, Zagat forgot to ask about hospitality. It's a very, very different thing, and that's the X factor.
0: So that's when it happened.
1: And that's when we named our so, group, the Union Square Hospitality Group, and I said, yeah, we constantly want to make our food and wine and decor better and service. but. We got to just triple down on our core competence, which is how do you make people feel? It's
0: the two keys: the smiley face and the frowny face. Yep. Wow, never heard that one. <laughs> um, as usual, you're not standing still. Tell me about Tacochina
1: Tacocina.
0: Tacocina. I'm sorry. Lo siento. Oh, that was good.
1: So, thank you. Yeah, Tacocina is just a really, really fun opportunity to um, once again land in a brand new public park, which is called Domino Park, which was created um, by a a visionary company in Brooklyn. They bought the old Domino Sugar Factory, which has been an eyesore for many, many years on the uh, East River in Williamsburg, completely restoring it. That's going to be offices. They're building residential towers behind it. And as part of it, they created a brand new, beautiful park right on the river. And they invited us to conceive something to put there that would give people a reason to want to use it. Don't you love getting invitations? Look I love you. those kind Look of invitations. <laughs> and clearly, um, we wanted to do something new. We, we said, you know, let's not do Shake Shack. That's kind of obvious. Right. But let's once again ask ourselves what would be a kind of food that anybody could eat yeah. um, where the price point's not an object. And, you know, it, it took me back to uh, an experience I had many, many, many years ago in Santa Barbara at a place called La Superica. I bet you've been there before. No, have not. It's a little taco shack. Julia Child used to love going there when okay. she lived in Santa Barbara. And we'll see. It's, it's had a great first season. Cool. Um, cold weather is not its friend so far. It's open, but um, <laughs> on warm days and warm nights, the place was just jumping all Good. summer.
0: And the other one, uh, Manhattan.
1: Yep. So Manhattan opened about three months ago. Okay. On the 60th floor of a building that many, many New Yorkers have never gone to called 28 Liberty. Okay. It used to be uh, Chase Plaza. It was the headquarters. Uh, In fact, David Rockefeller's office was in the building. and, And we're on the 60th floor, which has some of the most... Commanding views you will ever see of this city. Wow! And we have developed an amazing bar um, and and a really really fun restaurant.
0: Yeah, I've heard the bar is great. I gotta get yeah, up there. You yeah, sh-
1: you should just go because go for a drink, you know, for that kind of view in New York, you mostly have to pay to get up the elevator. Right. <laughs> Seriously, and just go take in the view and and okay, it's great. All right, it's on the list. So.
0: I've got to ask you one last thing, personally, Union Square Cafe. I've got memories. My daughter Katie, seven years old, her first oysters. She's the the server came over and, and Katie at seven said, "I'll have I'll have the oysters." And I was like, "That's the new one." And they they came out and I, she first one went down the hatch, no problem. I said, "Wow, that's impressive." Second one, second one was great, you know. I'm watching her. She takes it. She, gives, she looks at me. She gives me the look. It's like, well, there's an issue. So I had a napkin, boom, right back out. And the server was like, so good. Just came over and just gracefully. It was like totally cool. Um, the college boy, Tate, his first birthday, birthday lunch. My dad's 85th birthday, where my whole family was there. And somehow you found a bottle of vintage 1924, his birth year wine. I forget what wine it was, but you found it. Probably, uh,
1: probably Madeira.
0: Yeah, it was actually, so thank you for that. So, when you started out, did you ever think you would have become a maker of memories? Because that's what you've done.
1: I will say thank you to that. No, but, uh, but I, I think that that's, the, the role of restaurants I think are twofold. Number one is to be a placemaker. If you can create a place that changes the way people look at where they are, that's something. And then if you can create a place that people enjoy enough that they want to go back and create memories, then you've really got something. And I feel like my favorite restaurants in the world do both of those things. Yeah. Um, you know, what, the greatest compliment in the world mm-hmm. is when I'm traveling or someone else is traveling. And the very first place you go off the airplane in a new city is that restaurant. You're going there because that restaurant actually has terroir in that city. Hmm. I and I have restaurants like that where I know I'm where I am right. while I'm there. And right. it could also be the last restaurant right. before getting on the airplane. So whenever we see suitcases, we go, that's a place that that's cool. means something even more than I'm hungry. It means I want to know where I am and I want to remember what happened. Wow.
0: Danny Meyer. Thanks, man. It was great. Thanks for taking the time. Love you, Doug. Thank you. So good seeing you. Be good. There we go. Danny Meyer. I know that went longer than usual, but we could easily have gone another hour. What a story. It's interesting to hear how often he had to prove to himself that his success wasn't just a fluke. I guess we're all driven to do things based on our past, based on experiences that didn't work out. I know, just speaking for myself, my family and I have always had great experiences at his restaurants. And back in Napa, we've tried to create that warm, welcoming environment at our winery. Thanks for listening again today. If you enjoy these podcasts, please feel free to send an email to podcast at schaefervineyards.com with any ideas you may have for future guests or ways to improve what we're doing. Also, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. It really helps other people find the taste. We'll see you next time.